Okay, well, let me pray. We'll get started. I'm sure some people will file in here. Lord, we come to you this morning asking for your help as we interpret Scripture. Give us your guidance. Give us your love, as you always do. Help us to see what is truly there, and uh, not to over-interpret, not to misinterpret, but to read this prophet, Ezekiel, in a way that the Israelites would have understood it, in a way that is um, enlightened by the New Testament even. Uh, But help us to see what it is you want us to see as we, as New Covenant Christians, read an Old Covenant book. Teach us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel's a prophet. Ezekiel's the name of the guy who wrote the book. We don't even have to worry about that. Usually the liberals want to make that an issue, but it's uh, not much of an issue when he actually says right away he's the one writing it. Let's talk about his name. That means strengthened by God. And so we see his name mentioned specifically in chapter 1, verse 3, and again in 24, 24. And his name means strengthened by God. Even even the book, in a sense, is about being strengthened by God. Even the sermon today is about being strengthened by God. If you were to look at the three major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, you can kind of see an attribute of God. So this is a good way to remember it. Isaiah talks about God's holiness. And that's Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Jeremiah is what? God's sovereignty. The sovereign word and the sovereignty. Remember, he says, I I knew you from the womb. I created you to be my prophet. I appointed you. Jeremiah didn't get a question in the womb. Do you want to be a prophet or not? God wasn't worried about people's free will. Although when Jeremiah was a prophet, he wanted to be that. But it was God's sovereignty there. And now in Ezekiel, we see that he really he's the prophet of the glory of God, the glory of Yahweh. You see the glory in chapter 1. It starts the book, really, the first vision that he has. And the glory leaves Jerusalem. And by the end of the book, the glory of God's going to come back to Jerusalem. So let's just look at it, chapter 1 here. I think it's my favorite chapter in Ezekiel. Now it came about in the 30th year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was by the river Chebar among the exiles. The heavens were open, and I saw visions of God. So this is the first vision that he's receiving. Uh, on he's, he's in his 30s, mid-30s here. On the fifth of the month, and the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's exile, so that's dating the book, the start of the book, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest. So Ezekiel's a priest. Not all prophets were priests, but uh, some prophets, we don't even know their genealogy. We know that Ezekiel's a priest. He's serving in the river Chebar. says that he's the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians. He was part of that group that got taken by Nebuchadnezzar before Jerusalem was destroyed. The first time uh, the Babylonians come in, they don't destroy the city, they don't destroy the temple, but they do capture the area, appoint or sort of put a guy as king in the place of a local ruler, and then they take a bunch of the wisest and the best, and they go back to the Babylonian empire, and then they spread them around in the major cities. Well, one of those is Ezekiel, and he's of the priesthood class. He's of the priesthood genealogy. And there the hand of the Lord came upon him. So this means he's either knocked down or knocked out or maybe standing up and sees a vision. He says, as I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually and a bright light around it. And in its midst, something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. What you'll notice in the Bible is when people see God and when they see angels, they don't see some 
wimpy little baby with wings or some comfortable setting. It's always one of power. It's always one showing God's power and force and and mighty strength. Within it were figures resembling four living beings, and this was their appearance. They had a human form. So these are angels. There's four of them. They're generally shaped like humans. They have a human body, in other words, or they look like they have a human body. They're not physically made up of the same parts as we are, but they're in the shape of a human being. Each of them had four faces and four wings. So that's the difference. They Generally, they look like a human, but they look different, don't they? Four wings and four faces. Their legs were straight. Their feet were like a calf's hoof. There's another difference. They gleamed like burnished bronze. So we haven't even gotten to the vision of the Lord. Just the angels themselves are glowing in the sense that they're They have this glory of God around them. Under their wings on their four sides were human hands. As for the faces and wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another. Their faces did not turn when they moved. Each went straight forward. So they have these four faces going the four different directions. And they don't even have to turn their head because of that. So they can move just like they need to. We're going to find out these are underneath the throne of God here. As for the form of their faces, each one had the face of a man. All four had the face of a lion on the right, the face of a bull on the left, and all four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above. Each had two touching another being and two covering their bodies. And each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit was about to go, they would go without turning as they went. In the midst of the living beings, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches darting back and forth among the living beings. The fire was bright, the lightning was flashing from the fire, and the living beings ran to and fro like bolts of lightning. So we have these angelic beings, and, and they're going to be at basically four corners underneath the throne of God as, as it moves. And they seem to be moving too, but their wings are touching. And then within that box of the four, there's this lightning and fire and flashing. And we haven't even gotten to the throne and the Lord upon the throne. So this is amazing. Now as I looked, the living beings, behold, there was one wheel on the earth beside the living beings for each of the four of them. The appearance of the wheels and their workmanship were like sparkling barrel. And all four of them had the same form. So barrel was a stone that shined. It was sparkling. Uh, Their appearance and workmanship being as if one wheel were within another. So this is kind of tricky. I've seen some images where they try to recreate this. I should have probably put some on the slides, but I'll do that for next week because we'll still be in Ezekiel. I've always envisioned one wheel inside or outside of each of these angels. But then it says here that there's a wheel within a wheel. So it's kind of hard to get a grasp of what's going on here. But what do you guys think these angels are? We have a few angels mentioned in Scripture. We just have angels, regular. It's more than that, obviously. Regular angels, I would say, just the average angel looks like a person. They often show up on the earth with no wings. They're taken as a man until they're discovered to be an angel. And in Isaiah, we saw a class of angels that had not been mentioned previously. Remember those? Isaiah 6? Seraphim. And seraphim were flying all around God. But how many wings did a seraphim have? Six wings. And these have what? Four wings, right? Two sets. The seraphim, as far as we know, only had one face. These have four faces. So what are these? Cherubim. These are cherubim mentioned back in Genesis. Remember, a cherubim guarded the garden. It says a cherubim and a flaming sword guarded the garden so that Adam and Eve couldn't go back. Even though they knew the way back, they couldn't get back. It was hidden from them eventually. But the cherubim are mentioned there. Later in Ezekiel, uh, he's going to say they're cherubim. There's a lot of people who debate right here, what are these, what are these? He's going to call them cherubim later. 
And then we'll see something very similar. There's a few minor changes in the description in the book of Revelation. And whenever John sees the throne room of God, he'll see something very similar. And I think those are cherubim as well. So we're in uh, 115. Now as I looked at the living beings, there's these wheels. Verse 16, the appearance of the wheels. They're, they're shining. They're like a jewel. They're, it's like they're made of some kind of beautiful jewel. Uh, whenever they moved, they moved in their four directions without turning as they moved. As for their rims, they were lofty and awesome. And the rims of all four of them were full of eyes round about. So these wheels have eyes, probably not on the outside of the wheel, but on the sides. Whenever the living beings moved, the wheels moved with them. And whenever the living beings rose from the earth, the wheels rose also. Whenever the spirit was about to go, they would go in that direction. And the wheels rose close beside them, for the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. So these wheels, they're either representative or actual, some kind of special wheels. They're controlled by the beings, the angelic beings, the cherubim. And they're going to symbolize or actually be the movement of the glory of God upon the earth. Whenever those went, these went. So whenever the cherubim moved, the wheels moved. Whenever those stood still, these stood still. Whenever those rose from the earth, the wheels rose close beside them, for the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. So now we finally get to the vision of the Lord. Now over the heads of the living beings, there was something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal spread out over their heads. So there's a floor above their heads, and it's an expanse. It's, it's wide, and it's got a gleam to it like crystal. It's a crystal floor. Under the expanse of their wings were stretched out straight one toward the other. Each one also had two wings covering its body on the one side and the other. So often we see this with a seraphim. We saw that they cover their body probably to show the holiness of God. They're different than the Lord is. 24, I also heard the sound of their wings like the sound of abundant waters as they went, like the voice of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army camp. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. So when this thing moves, it's really loud really loud just because of their wings. Their wings are so powerful and so awesome that it sounds like the voice of God. It sounds like abundant waters, a huge waterfall. Probably easier for us is thunder. It's that constant rumbling sound of thunder. It's so powerful, so strong. And there came a voice from above the expanse that was over their heads. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. Now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne like lapis lazuli in appearance. I think that's blue, right? I don't know my colors. Isn't that a stone that's really blue? Blue sapphire? I think that's my birthstone. A brilliant blue. I like blue, so that sounds like a good color to me. And on that which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. So there's these angels, cherubim. They're the most, I think the most mighty ranking of holy angels is the cherubim. And then they have these wheels with the eyes. Then they have this crystal floor that's gleaming. Then there's this lapis lazuli, there's the throne. Uh, there's something sitting on it. It's, it's like a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins, this would just be his thigh, and upward, like glowing metal, looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire. He's glowing, he's gleaming, he's shining. And there was a radiance around him. So everything from the feet of the cherubim all the way up to the top of the Lord's head is glowing, radiating. And I think this is one of the best descriptions here. One of the most beautiful ones, this appearance in verse 28. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. 
I think that's interesting. Like a rainbow shining. There's that much color and shine and light and gleam coming off of the Lord. Now, what do you think of when you think of the New Testament? What do you think is a similar wording to what we just read? What book? I've already mentioned it. Revelation chapter 1. And now it's a little bit more descriptive. John's already seen the Lord Jesus Christ. So he recognizes him in Revelation chapter 1. But there's all this imagery in, in Revelation 1 of the gleaming, golden, shining Lord. Later the throne room in Revelation 5 and 6. Uh, these cherubim are described, this expanse, this throne. I think uh, what you're seeing here is pre-incarnate Christ being described. He's pre-incarnate. He doesn't have a, a specific description here. Nobody knew what he would look like, Isaiah 53, but it's the appearance of a man. And since in the New Testament, we hear that no one's ever seen the Lord, that means Isaiah saw pre-incarnate Christ, not God the Father. And John tells us that it was indeed Isaiah who saw Christ. And I think that's what Ezekiel's seeing here. But you'll see at the end of chapter one, it's the glory of the Lord. And he goes on to talk about how the glory of the Lord is leaving the temple. All right, what's the date of this book? 593 B.C., is chapter one. That's when it starts. How do we know that? On the fifth month in the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's exile. So we have a dating right there. We have a date stamp. And it goes all the way to 571 BC. That's in chapter 29. He gives us another time stamp. Now in the 27th year, on the first of the month, the word of the Lord came to me saying, again, probably the uh, 27th year there of Jehoiachin the last real king of uh, Israel. We talked about him last week. So the book's not 29 chapters long. There's a lot that comes after chapter 29, but that's looking towards the future. It'll be interesting when in the, uh, the new heavens and the new earth, it says God will dwell among us. The sun will be there. What's that going to be like? Is, is there still going to be this shining, gleaming? We're all going to be sanctified and having righteous, gleaming bodies in some sense. So it is very interesting. What's the theme of the book? Well, what's the theme of the prophets in general? judgment, right? And hope. So here it's condemnation, consolation. So there, there is a, a bit of comfort and then of course restoration. But there's going to be a lot of condemnation because even though many of them have already been taken into captivity, they're still not obeying. Back in Jerusalem, you have the false prophet Hananiah and he's saying, oh yeah, some of us got taken away into exile, but they're coming right back. That's a false prophet. He was mentioned in Jeremiah. And Ezekiel is in the exile, and he's got to tell them, no, we're not going back for a while, and it's going to get worse. The whole city is going to be destroyed, which those people wouldn't listen, even though they'd already been taken in exile. Well, that's one thing, but it can't be that God's holy city would be destroyed. And so Ezekiel is seeing the spiritual realm in this first vision, and God's city can be destroyed if God leaves it. So the glory of God's going to leave it, and indeed it can be destroyed but it will be rebuilt, he says, by the end of the book. So why is it in our Bibles? Well, the purpose is the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple were necessary. They're necessary measures for the God of glory to correct his disobedient people. God doesn't just let sin go on and on forever. He told them certain things would happen. If they disobeyed, if they worshiped false gods, then they would be cursed. And this is just like in Jeremiah. This is the ultimate fulfillment of those promises, the Mosaic Covenant. However, in the future, the Lord of Israel, Yahweh, is going to restore them. So every prophet has a message of both judgment and hope. And he's going to bring them back to the land, ultimately a remnant, and that's going to establish them with a new temple. So by the end of the book, he's talking about a new temple because the temple is going to be destroyed by the time we get to the middle of the book, the old temple. 
So look at just the, the different prophecies. We'll have a look at these. But, but first of all, I've, I have a few that have stars beside them. What do you notice different? These are the dates of the prophecies given to us by Ezekiel. Remember, he gives us those date stamps. What do you notice about the ones with asterisks? So the first one comes in 593, and we're in BC, so it's counting down as you go forward. What happens with the asterisks? Well, we haven't looked at the verses, but just in the dates. Look at the dates. So 593, 92, 91, 88, 87 or 86, then back to the beginning of 87, then 571, then back to 587, 587, and then he goes, starts going in order again. The ones with the asterisks are out of order. See, even the last two, right? March 17th, 585, and then he goes back to January 9th. So you can't always read the scripture assuming, especially in the prophets, that all these things happen one right after the other. Now, sometimes that is the case, but he actually dates every single one of these, and you can just put it on a timeline and see that some of these he goes back. So he's, he's ordering some of these more thematically, like the Gospel of Luke, for example. Luke doesn't say every single thing happened in this order. He will move things around to make his point a little stronger, and that's fine. It's not like God's tricking us or anything. He's telling us exactly when the dates are. The problem is, what do we do? We just scan right by it, right? Ah, the fifth month of this king. We don't know who that guy is. Don't care. Next next page. Well, it's there for a reason. doesn't mean you have to break it out and study it and draw a timeline. But if you wanted to, you could. But it is there for the people who want to go and study. Of course, liberals are trying to disprove it. So let's look at a few of these. We've already looked at chapter 1, verse 2. Let's look at 8-1, just to give you a sampling. Show you that they're there. You haven't read this book lately. It came about in the sixth year on the fifth day of the sixth month, as I was sitting in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord fell on me there. This is the next prophecy. You had the first prophecy starting in chapter 1, and that goes all the way through. And then the second one starts in chapter 8 here. So why doesn't he just say, you know, September 17th, 592 B.C.? That'd make it easier for us, right? We might understand it. Why didn't he say that? They didn't use that kind of calendar back then, right? First of all, they're using the Hebrew calendar. Secondly, they're, they're giving the order different, right? First you give the year, and it's not B.C. because they don't know what B.C. is. It's the year that the king was reigning. And it's the fifth day of the sixth month in the Hebrew calendar. So you can kind of see that he's, giving these, he's getting these prophecies from the Lord over time in this time frame. And some of them are not necessarily in chronological order. Let's look at an outline. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because we're going to go back through some of these prophecies. But I already told you the first big point is condemnation. And then there's going to be consolation, which includes restoration. So the first 23 chapters is a condemnation of Israel. What they've done wrong and why they're being punished. 33 through 48 is a future restoration. And even, we'll just say temple. I think it's a millennial temple. This might be out of the MacArthur Study Bible, but I think it's a millennial temple. We'll, we'll get to that probably next week. Uh, if we were to break it down, point number one, first, Ezekiel's commission. So chapters one through three, he sees this vision. God tells him he's going to be a prophet. And he says, look, they're not going to listen to you. Then there's going to be a judgment on Judah, four through 24. It's already started by Ezekiel's day. It's going to get worse. But there's also going to be a judgment of the Gentiles. They're not getting out of this. The Gentiles aren't going to be free. They're, they're happy that Babylon has come in and, and destroyed much of Israel and taken away captives. All right, let's look at some of these strange prophecies. So Jeremiah's the weeping prophet. He goes and he, he, he proclaims judgment and doom. He's a preacher. Okay, Isaiah, 
Isaiah is kind of a preacher. Most of the prophets are preachers. But Ezekiel does a lot of his prophesying through, we might say, skits. When, when my kids were little during family worship, we one time decided we were going to do a skit to show them, you know. And for the next five years, all they wanted was a skit. They didn't want to hear the Bible being taught just with words. They wanted the parents to do a skit to show what was happening. Well, we, we weren't very good at it, so we quit. And our kids got older, some of them. But uh, Ezekiel is told to do these things. So look at this in chapter 3, verse 23. So, some of the stuff is gross. Others are humorous. Chapter 3. Verse 23, so I got up and went out to the plain and behold, the glory of the Lord was standing there like the glory on which I saw by the river Chebar and I fell on my face. The spirit then entered me and made me stand on my feet. He spoke with me and said to me, go shut yourself up in your house. As for you, son of man, they will put ropes on you and bind you with them so that you cannot go out among them. Moreover, I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth so that you will be mute and cannot be a man who rebukes them, for they are rebellious house. But when I speak to you, I will open your mouth, and you will say to them, Thus says the Lord God, He who hears, let him hear, and he who refuses, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. So go home, let people tie you up, and when you try to talk, you're not going to be able to talk. Your tongue will be stuck to the roof of your mouth. Why? Because they're rebellious and not going to listen to you anyway. So to further what they actually want, to further their judgment, I'm not going to let you talk to them until I appoint the time which you will start speaking. Now, imagine you're an Israelite. You're in exile. You're in this little town by the river here. And you've got this group of guys who are priests. They can't go and do their priestly duties. But you would expect that they would be teaching the Bible. And in this case, they probably knew that Ezekiel was a prophet at this point. And he comes and says, tie me up. And then he doesn't talk for a while. Well, you're waiting, back then, you're waiting to hear from God. We've been taken into exile. What's the next move, God? What are you going to do? Oh, this man's your prophet. He had a vision. We, were, we saw him. Uh, maybe some people saw him fall down on his face and had this vision. Okay, tell us. What's God going to do? And there's silence. And he's bound up with ropes. They would have already started thinking, that's not a good sign. Chapter 4, right after this. Now you, son of man, get yourself a brick. Place it before you and inscribe a city on it, Jerusalem. So get a brick. Write Jerusalem on it, or scratch Jerusalem on it, the name. Then lay siege against it. I mean, he's out in the yard playing war with sticks and mud and bricks. Then lay siege against it. Build a siege wall. Raise up a ramp. Pitch camps. Place battering rams against it all around. I mean, it sounds like something my boys would go do outside, right? Just build a little fort out there, a little representation of it and and start attacking it and build battering rams, all the things of war during that time when you got a city being besieged. Then get yourself an iron plate and set it up as a iron wall between you and the city and set your face toward it so that it is under siege and besiege it. This is a sign to the house of Israel. So again, you're an Israelite. You're waiting for God to answer you. Well, here's a prophet. Finally, we've got a prophet. Oh, he's tied up and can't speak. Okay, now he's finally untied and can speak, and he's cursing Israel. He's basically telling us about the judgment that's going to come. And what does he do? He starts playing with mud and bricks and playing war out in the front yard. And to symbolize it, he puts up an iron plate, and he stares at the iron plate. So he represents God, and on the other side of the iron plate is Jerusalem being besieged, being destroyed. So what does that mean? God can't see it because there's an iron plate. Why? Because he doesn't want to see it. God's not going to look upon Jerusalem. He's going to let it be destroyed. And at this time, Jerusalem still stands. Yeah, it's, it's under the domination of the Babylonians, but the city's still there. Chapter 4, starting in verse 4. 
Here's another one. As for you, lie down on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel on it. You shall bear their iniquity for the number of days that you lie on it. So their sin is heavy. That's why they're going to be destroyed. For I have assigned you a number of days corresponding to the years of their iniquity. 390 days. Lay on your side for 390 days. Thus you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. So 390 years, they went into sin before this. When you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side and bear the iniquity of the house of Judah. I have assigned it for you for 40 days, a day for each year. How many days is that? 40 plus 390, 430. You're going to lay on your side and then roll over at the end for over a year. Maybe outside, you know, in the front yard. I don't know. Who brought him food? Did his wife bring him food? Did his kids go out there and talk to him? Did he stay out there all night? I mean, it doesn't sound like he's, he's getting up and going in. Then you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem with your arms. So the, the little setup is still there with the brick and all that. You're going to set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared and prophesy against it. Now behold, I will put ropes on you so that you cannot turn from one side to the other till you have completed the days of your siege. I'm thinking he gets up at night and goes in the house and goes to sleep. But it says here that he's going to be bound with ropes. So I don't know. Maybe they carried him in at night. His sons were strong enough if he had sons old enough. Interesting. Not something you've seen in the prophets. 4.9, continuing on. But as for you, take wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and spelt. Put them in one vessel. Make them into bread for yourself. You shall eat it according to the number of the days that you lie on your side. 390 days. You got to cook this meal of bread. Ezekiel bread, right, Scott? Y'all still carry Ezekiel bread? There's actually people who take this recipe and make it up. It's healthy. Of course, some people put a little too much. Oh, it's the only recipe in the Bible. If we make it, it's going to bless us. It's going to be great. Ezekiel bread. That's what he's eating. Uh, Your food which you eat shall be 20 shekels a day by weight. You shall eat it from time to time. The water you drink shall be the sixth part of a hen by measure. You shall drink it from time to time. So I haven't measured all this out and looked at it, but I don't think it's very much food if I recall. You shall eat it as barley cake, having baked it in the sight over human dung. That's not going to be very good, right? Not only that, but to a Jew, that's, that's defiling. That's unclean. Now he's going to be declared unclean. And I'm not even sure at this point, if you're not near the temple, how you would even go about the cleansing process to be clean. Then the Lord said, Thus will the sons of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations, where I will banish them. So I'm going to punish them. They're going to be sent out among the nations. And and they're going to be defiled by eating unclean food. That's like being cooked over human dung. But here's Ezekiel's response. Ah, Lord, God, behold, I've never been defiled. He's never eaten any food that has defiled him, according to the, the law in Leviticus. For from my youth until now, I've never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has any unclean meat ever entered my mouth. So God comforts him. He said to me, see, I will give you cow's dung in the place of human dung over which you will prepare your bread. I guess now he's not going to be unclean, but it's still not going to be great. I know that a lot of the plainsmen who went west had to use buffalo dung, buffalo chips. That's still not going to be great, right? But I guess that doesn't defile according to the law. So he said to me, son of man, behold, I'm going to break the staff of bread in Jerusalem And they will eat bread by weight and with anxiety and drink water by measure and in horror because bread and water will be scarce. So Ezekiel's not getting much food, and that's to symbolize what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Because the city's being sieged in times of siege, you can't get food, you can't get much water, and you're going to starve. It's going to be that bad. Remember, they're in exile already, but they're thinking nothing's going to happen to the city. We're going back soon. God's going to bring us back. 
It's God's holy city. And it says they will be appalled with one another and waste away in their iniquity. They're just going to waste away. All right, so all of chapter 4 is just one of these signs right after the other. Then chapter 5, he's got to shave his head and his beard. That's bad, right on? Shave off your beard. It's humiliating to the Jewish man because as soon as you were old enough, you grew a beard. That was your manliness. And, you know, if I shave my beard, I look like a young man. And I've always, my wife's wanted me to look more mature, I guess. So I have to have a beard, right? We have to do that. So, but in those days, to cut your beard, you'll, you'll see this uh, in previous historical books where they wanted to take a Jewish ambassador and they would cut their beard off and shave their hair. That was disgraceful. That was a bad thing to do to a, an ambassador that came from the king. So 5.1, As for you, son of man, take a sharp sword. Take and use it as a barber's razor on your head and beard. I don't even know how you do that with a sword. Even if it's short, that's going to be difficult. Probably going to be some cuts. Then take scales for weighing and divide the hair. So now he's cutting his hair. He's playing with it here. One third you shall burn in the fire at the center of the city. So all these Jews are living there. Go down to the center of the city. Burn a third of your hair. Everybody's going to stop and take notice, in other words. When the days of the siege are completed, then you shall take one third and strike it with the sword all around the city. And one third you shall scatter to the wind. And I will unsheathe a sword behind them. Take also a few in number from them and bind them in the edges of your robes. Take again some of them and throw them into the fire and burn them in the fire. From it a fire will spread to all the house of Israel. So what's he doing this for? What do you think that symbolizes? City, but even more, why, the, the dividing up the people. You know, a, a third, look, the first third, what are they going to do? They're going to be burned immediately, going to die immediately. And then uh, another third, they're going to be struck with the sword all around the city. They're trying to get out. They're trying to escape. Uh, they're trying to maybe even fight the Babylonians as they besiege the city. This hasn't happened yet now. He's prophesying what's going to happen. One third is going to be scattered everywhere. So a third of the Jewish people, roughly, will go and be scattered. And then even some of them, there's going to be a sword behind them. And then there's a few in number and bind them in the edges of your robes. Probably there. I'm just, I'm just in, yeah, remnant. I'm probably just, I'm just interpreting as I go here. I haven't put extensive study in here. But uh, it sounds like that's what he's saying in context here. Uh, take again some of them, throw them into the fire, burn them in the fire. So maybe even some that you think are the remnant are going to be punished, thrown into the fire as well. All right, Ezekiel had to pack his bags and dig through the wall. Chapter 12. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, you live in the midst of a rebellious house. The people of Israel, people of Judah, who have eyes to see but do not see, ears to hear but do not hear, for they are a rebellious house. Therefore, Son of man, prepare for yourself baggage for exile. So pack your bags, literally pack your suitcases and go into exile by day in their sight. Show them what this looks like. Pack up your bags and, and your luggage. They had bigger trunks and things like that. Go into exile from your place to another place in their sight. Perhaps they will understand, though they are a rebellious house. You're so stubborn and hard-headed, God says. I'm going to have to show you. I'm going to have to draw a picture with my prophet for you. And it's going to be stick figures. and He's going to act it out for you. Maybe you'll get it, God is saying. Bring out your baggage by day in their sight, a baggage for exile. Then you will go out at evening in their sight as those going into exile. Dig a hole through the wall in their sight and go out through it. Load the baggage on your shoulder in their sight and carry it out in the dark. You shall cover your face so that you cannot see the land. For I have set you as a sign to the house of Israel. Put a blindfold on, pack your bags, 
and go out in the daytime so everybody can see you. But at night, uh, I guess he doesn't have a blindfold in the day, but at night, put a blindfold on, and they had a, f- a fence around their houses, a little wall, and or maybe even the wall of the house. Dig through it and sneak out with the blindfold on at night, symbolizing what people are going to have to do in Jerusalem. They're going to have to run for their lives. They're going to have to sneak out. And so he goes on. I won't, I won't read the rest of that. The eighth one here, he had to eat his bread with quaking and drink water with trembling. Again, in chapter 12. Uh, Let's skip forward to chapter 21, number 9 here. He's brandished a sharp sword and struck his hands together. So it's not just that the city is going to be destroyed, but people. With the city's destruction comes people dying. 21.8, again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord, say, a sword, a sword sharpened and also polished, sharpened to make a slaughter, polished to flash like lightning. Or shall we rejoice, the rod of my son, despising every tree? Is it given to be polished, that it may be handled? The sword is sharpened and polished to give it into the hand of the slayer. Cry out and wail, son of man. He's, he's crying out in front of them. He's wailing. For it is against my people. It is against all the officials of Israel. They are delivered over to the sword with my people. Therefore, strike your thigh. For there is a testing. And what if even the rod which despises will be no more, declares the Lord God. I don't know. I don't think he's cutting his thigh, but he's probably hitting it pretty hard with the flat of the sword to show how serious this is going to be. Uh, chapter 24, 1, he's told to cook uh, a pot of stew. So now he's doing the cooking example. The word of the Lord came to me in the ninth year, in the tenth month, and the tenth of the month, saying, Son of man, write the name of the day, this very day. The king of Babylon has laid siege to Babylon this very day. So the siege is taking place starting today. Speak a parable to the rebellious house and say to them. So they couldn't turn on the news and see Babylon under siege. It would have taken weeks to get the message that the siege had even started. Ezekiel saying it starts today. I'm telling you. God has told me. And it says, put on the pot. Put it, put it in. Also pour water in it. Put in the pieces. Every good piece. The thigh, the shoulder. Fill it with choice bones. Take the choices of the flock. And also pile wood under the pot. Make it boil vigorously. Also seethe its bones in it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot in which there is rust. So we don't have to work hard on interpretation here. He's telling us the pot is like the city, but it's a rusty pot. And whose rust has not gone out of it, take out of it piece after piece without making a choice. For her blood is in her midst. She placed it on the bare rock. She did not pour it on the ground to cover it with dust, that it may cause wrath to come up to take vengeance. I've put her blood on the bare rock, that it may not be covered. So throw your meat chunks in there and start pulling some out that aren't even cooked yet. They're bloody. Throw them on the rocks. Those are the people who are going to be killed. It's a symbol. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city. I also will make the pile great. Heap on the wood. Kindle the fire. Boil the flesh well. Mix in the spices. Let the bones be burned. Then set it empty on its coals that it may be hot and its bronze may glow, and its filthiness may be melted in it, its rust consumed. So what are we seeing here? A picture of what's happening in Jerusalem. They're going to be cooked by the fire, by the wrath of God. And you're sitting here in exile, and you're thinking about your cousins and your family, maybe your grandparents, your extended family, your tribe, and Ezekiel's talking about them being cooked in a pot, like bloody meat. You would think that would wake them up, right? It didn't. I could imagine most of them might not have believed that this could actually be happening. 
24:15. This is interesting, a little sad here. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, behold, I'm about to take from you the desire of your eyes with a blow. Who's the desire of his eyes? His wife. Your wife's going to die. But you shall not mourn, and you shall not weep, and your tears shall not come. Groan silently, make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and put your shoes on your feet, and do not cover your mustache, and do not eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and in the evening my wife died, and in the morning I did as I was commanded. The people said to me, Will you not tell us what these things that you are doing mean for us? Why aren't you weeping? Why aren't you mourning? This is what you're supposed to do. This is according to tradition. You're acting very strange, Ezekiel. Then I said to them, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Speak to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm about to profane my sanctuary, the pride of the power, the desire of your eyes. So my wife was the desire of my eyes, and the Lord has taken her. Well, the temple is the desire of the Jewish people's eyes and the delight of their soul, your sons, your daughters who have left behind will fall by the sword. They're going to die too. You will do as I have done. You will not cover your mustache. That must have been something they did to uh, mourn. You will not cover your mustache. You will not eat the bread of men. So they probably had something they ate, special bread, or they only ate bread for mourning. Your turbans will be on your heads, your shoes on your feet. You will not mourn. You will not weep. But you will rot away in your iniquities, and you will groan to one another. Thus... Ezekiel will be a sign to you. This is, this is really Ezekiel's life. You're going to be a sign to the people by what you do, Ezekiel, and say. According to all that he has done, you will do. When it comes, then you will know that I am the Lord God. So can God give life and can God take it away? We're not told much. He could have had a disease. He could have already naturally been dying. And now God says it's time. We don't really know how God did it. But it's one way to show that he is sovereign over life and death. And that the mourning, it's not just her death, really, that's the lesson, but the lack of mourning, that was to be the lesson. Then he's mute for a season in chapter 4. He can't speak for a while. And then in in, um, chapter 37, he puts two sticks together, and they become one. So this is speaking of the restoration. The north and the south, remember, they divided, and he's going to put them back together, and they'll become one. Let's just look at that since we have a few more minutes here. We're going to go. Spend a lot of time in Ezekiel next week as well. I think we have 16 interpretive issues. That might take a whole class right there. 37.15 The word of the Lord came again to me saying, And you, son of man, take for yourself one stick and write on it for Judah and for the sons of Israel, his companions. And take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim and all the house of Israel, his companion. Then join them for yourself one to another into one stick that they may become one in your hand. When the sons of your people speak to you saying, will you not declare to us what you mean by these things? What, what are you doing with these sticks? Thus say, them, say to them, behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel, his companions. I will put them with the stick of Judah. So Joseph symbolizing the, the northern, 10 northern tribes that were taken away by Assyria many generations before. Now Judah, the southern kingdom taken into Babylon. God's going to make them one stick. He's going to make them one country, one kingdom. So you can read the rest of that on your own. Key chapters. We already read number one, the vision of four beings, four wheels, God's divine glory. Now, eight through 11 is where God's glory departs. It has to depart. The city cannot be destroyed unless God's glory departs. God can't let his city be destroyed if his glory is there. He, he has a special presence over the Ark of the Covenant. 
That's what the high priest would go into once a year and do the Day of Atonement. I'm looking for the exact verse. Chapter 10. Then I looked, and behold, in the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, something like a sapphire stone. I'm looking for the verse where it actually says they depart. 18, 10, 18. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. When the cherubim departed, they lifted... By the way, the cherubim are also symbolized on the Ark of the Covenant, right? Those angels that have their wings folded down and forward. So I think what the Ark of the Covenant is showing us is the reality of, of these things, these beings, these cherubim that are around God. 19, when the cherubim departed, they lifted their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight with the wheels beside them. They stood still at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house and the glory of the Lord of Israel hovered over them. So they're, they're moving out of the temple. They're at the east gate. These are the living beings that I saw beneath the God of Israel by the river Chebar. So I knew that they were cherubim. Each one had four faces. He describes them again. As for the likeness of their faces, these they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the river Chebar. Each one went out straight ahead. So the glory of God leaves. Goes out the east gate. 11.23 is the final. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city, stood over the mountain which is east of the city. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God to the exiles in Chaldea. So the vision that I had seen left me. So he's seeing what's actually happening in the spiritual realm in Jerusalem. And then at the end of the vision, his vision jumps back to reality, back in the Babylonian Empire. It's interesting, he leaves through the east gate. And by the end of the book, there's going to be the glory of God coming back in through the east gate. And I don't know how much you guys have read about uh, the Muslim conquest of Jerusalem. But if you go there today, the, the east gate of Jerusalem is walled up. And it's been walled up since the Muslims took over Jerusalem. Do you know why? Because they knew, Muslims knew what Ezekiel said. The glory of God's coming back through the east gate. The Messiah, Christians, of course, had been around a long time. By the time they take over Jerusalem, by the time the Muslims take over. So he'll just stop the Messiah from coming back by walling up that gate. And so today, it's still, you can't even go, you can go out and then come in and look at both sides of it. But you cannot go through there because it's completely bricked up. 36 and 37, the mountains of Israel to be blessed. We'll look at these chapters uh, probably next week. The Valley of Dry Bones, the reunion of Israel and Judah, and David is going to be their king. How can David be their king? He's already died. Well, remember, the Davidic covenant, there will always be a king forever into eternity from the line of David. 38 and 39, prophecy against Gog and Magog. That's an interpretive issue. Really, uh, we can't know for certain. We kind of get a direction of where these countries are going to come from uh, as they attack Jerusalem. The bigger issue is when is this going to happen? Is this something we expect in our lifetime? They're in the tribulation, at the end of the millennial kingdom. We'll, we'll talk about that. And then the, the bigger question is the temple, 40 through 48, very extensive measurements of a temple. And then God's glory comes back into this great, huge temple, bigger than anything that's ever been built there. There's worship happening again. Their people are restored in the land. Lots of interpretive fun when it comes to that temple. Let's look at some key passages and then we'll finish up. I put this one in here because it's, it seems to be forgotten today. People talking about reparations. Talking about how everyone's guilty for what happened in their country. Even if you weren't here at the time these things happened, at the time of slavery. Uh, if your parents were a certain skin color, then they're guilty. So that, therefore you're guilty. 
You even have some very prominent people like on the Gospel Coalition uh, saying that we all should repent for what our grandparents did to Martin Luther King Jr. And I think this is the, the key text for us, at least in the Old Testament. MacArthur preached a whole series on this a few years ago whenever all that stuff started happening. 1820. This is kind of just the point. You have to read the whole chapter to get the context. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. So what are you punished for? Your sin. Your dad's sin? No. Your mom's sin? No. Your grandparents' sin? Your ancestors' sin? I don't even know. I think my ancestors were poor. They didn't own land. They didn't own a plantation. But, you know, it's silly. It's silly because in God's word as Christians, we see right here. I mean, we can look back and if we know that they sinned, we can say, yeah, that's sin. But are we responsible for that? Should we bear that? Because in Israel, they were saying, yeah, you know, we were just born. And here we are. Here we are in exile. What do we do? That was our grandparents. That was our ancestors, our forefathers. They're the ones who sinned. Well, I guess God continues punishing generation after generation. So this is going to be an interpretive issue that we'll look at next week. Because in Exodus, it does say there will be curses to the third and fourth generation. It's in the law. We'll look at that next week and and talk about the differences between that and this verse. Verse 21, but if the wicked man turns from all his sin. So if if a person is in sin and they're going to be judged for it, but they turn from their sins, which he has committed and observes all my statutes and practices justice and righteousness, he will surely live. He will not die. So if he turns, if he repents, then he won't be punished. All his transgressions, which he has committed, will not be remembered against him. Because of his righteousness, which he has practiced, he will live. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? A lot of people take that verse out of context. They use it against Reformed theology, against the doctrines of grace, saying, you know, there's no way God could predestine people. Uh, He doesn't want anybody to go to hell. Well, the context right here isn't even about that. The context is saying, of course, if someone repents and turns and their life lines up with that, it's not just something they say, but they actually do turn and repent. Of course, God's going to forgive them. He doesn't find pleasure in them being punished. It's not as if God says, one sin, you're done. No, if you turn and repent, there's hope. We know that. That's the gospel, right? But it seems like people have forgotten this whole book exists in the Bible and this whole passage exists. Well, let's look at the new covenant in Ezekiel. Another passage that people forget. We should read our Bibles more. We don't, we don't want to be like so many who claim to be Christians and don't know the scriptures. Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-four. So we saw the new covenant in what book? We've already seen it in which book? Jeremiah. The New Covenant is explicitly stated in two Old Testament books, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. I think it's also in in Deuteronomy, but it's not as explicit. Jeremiah called it the New Covenant. Now here it is in Ezekiel 36, 24. I will take you, who is this? Israel. So remember, just like we talked about a few weeks ago, first it applies to Israel, then, then Gentiles get grafted in when Christ comes. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Now, this would have been great. This is good news because they're in exile. When are they getting back home? Well, here God says in the future, I'm going to do this. Then I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols because they were idolatrous. They were sinful. This would have been good news to them. They might be thinking at this point, though, this is some kind of temple ritual. 
But now, now verse 26 takes it even further. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Well, this is not temple ritual here. This is something God's doing spiritually. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You're hard-hearted. You're stony hearts. You don't listen. I've blessed you with the land. I've given you the Bible. I've given you the law. You're not listening. But there's a new covenant coming. And you will listen and you will obey because I'm going to take out that stony heart and do something new. Give you a new heart. I will put my spirit within you. So there's the Holy Spirit. Not everybody in the Old Testament had the Spirit within them. And even the leaders in the Old Testament did not always have the Spirit. So David prays, let not your Spirit leave me. My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will actually do them. You will be able to. You will want to. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so that you will be my people. And I will be your God. So that's the new covenant. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Now, they didn't have all the details. They didn't know about the cross, really. They could have put it together with Isaiah. But you get the sense when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, nobody had really put all the pieces together. Because he says, you're a teacher of Israel. In other words, you know the Old Testament. You know the Bible. And you hadn't figured these things out. So they hadn't put it all together. And uh, you need a new heart to understand these things. And God's going to do that for them. He's going to give them a new heart. This is regeneration. This is the Holy Spirit coming into somebody, regenerating them when God calls them. And of course, that gets picked up in the New Testament. John chapter 3, the cleansing, the washing of water, the new heart, the Holy Spirit. Key people, Ezekiel, son of Buzi. I guess it's Buzi. Is that the right Hebrew pronunciation? Buzi? I've got to name some of your kids and convince your grandkids to be named Buzi. Uh, a priest called to be a prophet, ministered during the 70-year Babylonian captivity. Departed 597 B.C. So Ezekiel is, um, he, he's a young man when he gets taken into captivity uh, in 605. We don't know exact age. We'll talk about his age next week, but he, didn't, he wasn't born in captivity. A good uh, commentary is Charles L. Feinberg. This is easy to read. It doesn't have lots of uh, Hebrew in it. The prophecy of Ezekiel, the glory of the Lord. So it's very readable. I think it's his uh, Bible study lessons that he gave in his church. This is a guy that taught uh, MacArthur in seminary. He's a Jewish man who got converted. He might have been a rabbi even. got converted to Christ, became a professor in seminary. Okay, let's stop there because we're over time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the book of Ezekiel. It is uh, often, it sounds strange to us, the things that you had him do, the uh, interesting skits that he put on to show them how hard-hearted they were and how you were no longer going to listen. But we're also thankful that by the end of the book, you give hope, you give restoration, and you have explained to them the new covenant, that you don't leave it up to us to make a change, but you're going to change us. You're going to change our heart. Regeneration. We thank you for that. We thank you for the Spirit. Help us to obey your statutes and to live them out. In the name of our Lord, amen.